Welcome to Porter Wright's Antitrust Law Source. Welcome. Uh, this is Jay Levine from Porter Wright, and I'm uh, ably uh, assisted today again by uh, Sarah Smith Obers from Gut Check Analytics. How you doing, Sarah? Hi, Jay. I'm good. So we're going to close out today um, in our podcast um, section two, the unilateral conduct. Right. Okay. So this is uh, there's a couple of issues. Kind of want to round out the topic, and one, the first one we're going to discuss today is actually one that's uh, been in the news for the past couple of years, off and on. Um, uh, the government has gone after several you know, companies um, over this issue, um, as well as the fact that you know it, it, it is rising to prominence. And what is that? It's something called the Most Favored Nations Clause. Sounds salacious. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know about salacious, but it's. Definitely, it has been around a while, but it's being used now far more strategically. And um, while that's good, it can it can raise antitrust concerns. Right. So, first, let's make sure we're all talking about the same thing. Most favored nation clause essentially says um, it's an agreement between two people or two companies where um, company A says to company B, if you give a better price to anyone else. You've got to give me that price as well. So okay. it's a way of me making sure I'm always getting the best deal. Sounds okay. good. It sounds good. It, there, and there are a lot of pro-competitive reasons for this. It cuts down on transaction costs. We don't have right. to keep negotiating all the time. There's a certain amount of surety. Um, there's, there's just a lot of positives to it. However, as you will see, there are certain circumstances where it can be used anti-competitively. So let me let me tell you about an old case, okay. you know, relatively old, 1996, where DOJ challenged Delta Dental Plan. I'm sure everybody knows or have heard of I've Delta Dental. I've seen the Dental. commercials. Right, and I, I believe I have been a customer of theirs <laughs> at one point or another. Well, what happened is Delta Dental in New England had a clause in all of their contracts with their provider dentists and they and it basically said you dentist if you give a better rate to any other dental insurance company than what you're giving to us you've got to also give it to us okay seems somewhat benign but let me tell you a couple of figures and you know you'll see quickly what DOJ's problem was delta had about a 35 to 45% market share in the area yeah, not that doesn't huge, sound huge. But they had nearly 90% of the state's dentists under contract. Okay, so that's where the power is. Right. Because of that market share, the dentists couldn't afford to lose the revenue they would have lost if they gave Delta Denta the better rate that they, that they gave to the other insurance companies as well. And because of that, it made entry into the dental insurance market very Difficult because if you think about it, how are you going to get into the market? You're going to get into the market by giving better rates, mm-hmm. okay, um, or by you know negotiating, you know, whatever it may be. Well, if if essentially these dentists were giving a better rate to the new insurance company than they were giving to Delta Dental, then all of that all of the, their business with Dental Dental, they would have lost that much revenue that they couldn't afford. Right. Okay. 
So that was in 1996. Let's fast forward a few years. Um, This happened again in 2010 when um, DOJ sued Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Michigan. Okay. Okay. Uh, A case which is still, which actually is no longer ongoing, but because of a legislative um, issue, which you'll see in a second. But Blue Cross Blue Shield had a 60% market share. Okay. A little bit more than Delta Dental. They also had a most favored nation or a most favored nation plus contract with half of the state's hospitals. That's significant. That's significant. But it's, it's, it's and by the way, most favored nation plus contract just means that if you give someone else a better rate, you have to give me 5% better than that better rate. Oh, wow. That's the plus. Okay. Okay. Now, because of, of Blue Cross's importance, they again, they had a 60% market share. Um, for those ha- half the state's hospitals, you know, if you think about, you know, 60% or more of their business was coming from Blue Cross Blue Shield, and they were going to give, you know, and they were going to cut their rates to allow a new insurance company to come in and try to bring some competition in, that means they had to cut their rate to Blue Cross Blue Shield as well. Right. Well, when Blue Cross Blue Shield has that much of your business and you're cutting that much, even if it's a small percentage, it's going to significantly affect your bottom line. Right. So DOJ um, alleged that it raised hospital prices because hospitals couldn't cut their prices to any other insurance company. It kept it artificially high. Right. Okay. And it prevented other insurance from entering the market and it discouraged the hospitals from giving any discounts to any new would-be competitor. Sure. Okay. Blue Cross, Blue Shield, you know, moved to dismiss. It was denied. There was a class action. There was an Aetna. So the DOJ action is actually over uh, now because the legislature in Michigan has made it, these sorts of contracts, illegal. So that was it. The, the class action and the Aetna suit to recover damages as a result of this are ongoing. Oh, okay. Okay. You know, a lot of companies have most favored nation clauses. I don't by any means mean to suggest that you should not enter into them because by and large, they're, prob- they're probably going to be okay and they're an extremely efficient vehicle for contracting. However, again, if you're, you know, big in the industry and you, you know, cover a lot of the customers and if by engaging or contracting um, uh, along the lines of having a most favored nation clause will impede other people's ability to enter the market to challenge you, then you got to think twice about how you want to structure that most favored nation clause. Absolutely. Now, this gives rise to a little bit broader of a, um, of a discussion. Um, the former head of the economics unit at DOJ gave a fairly famous speech that talked about contracting issues where it um, uh, referenced rivals. Any contract that references rivals or that it's, you know, Sarah, you and I enter into a contract, but inherently certain clauses in those contracts impede on the conduct of one of my competitors, that can be problematic. And again, you got to look at it very cautiously. Now, let, let's look into... A lot of these are in the healthcare area, but they can be outside. Okay. Um, let's look at a couple of examples. Okay. So, you know, essentially, does the contract depend on information outside of the parties to the contract? 
you know, if it's... What does that mean? Okay. So let's say there's a, in a, in a lot of um, hospital contracts, there's something called a network inclusion clause. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you can have where it basically says, you know, I'm a big hospital in the area and I tell, and I tell the insurance companies, you know, it, you have to include me in all of your networks. Okay. Okay. Um, or if you include one of my rivals, you also have to include me. That sounds fair. It sounds fair, but again, it, it impedes the ability of the insurer to possibly provide a lower cost network. Oh, okay. Because uh, you are presumably the higher cost provider. But again, you're referencing something outside the parties to the contract. If you include them, you better include me. Okay. Okay. Or, you know, if you say, if you join one payers, you know, let's talk about uh, a doctor group. And let's say, and and in a lot of cities, you know, certain doctor groups are extremely powerful. Right. There's a few cities in, you know, uh, in the country where, you know, there's one doctor group that provides the anesthesiologist for every hospital in the city. Well, that group is pretty powerful. Mm-hmm. You know, so if they join one payer's plan, um, they have to join another payer's plan as well. You know, anything that sort of forces parity, um, which while it seems <laughs> your initial reaction was it's fair, but it could also impede the ability right. to possibly devise a network that is a little bit lower cost. Because if you think about your own healthcare choices recently, you know, you got these big networks, they generally cost more. Right. Um, whereas these sort of selective networks, um, where the insurance company essentially uh, contracts and um, for a lower rate, and they do a lower rate because it's a smaller network, and because it's a smaller network, the doctors and the hospitals have a better chance of getting the patient, and so they're willing to give a little bit lower on the on the provider rate itself. Well, if you can't have that kind of lower cost network because the bigger boys are telling are telling you or dictating to you that you need to include us in every network, that can be problematic because it's going to keep the price up. Yeah, that's not good for the consumer. Right. Okay, so that's that's sort of one way. Uh, another, market share discounts. And this, you know, again, um, I think I referenced before in the last podcast, um, uh, an antitrust, a uh, series of antitrust lawsuits I had um, with a, for a manufa- pharmaceutical manufacturer. i got to get that word out, right? Yeah. But it actually, my representation of that pharmaceutical manufacturer actually started um, when we sued the brand. And one of the things we sued on the brand is the brand um, had something called a market share discount, which basically told the pharmacies and the wholesalers that if, you know, for this molecule, if we are 90 or 95% or whatever the percentage was um, of your sales, you will get X percentage of a discount. And we argued that that essentially was preventing us from getting into the market. Um, at the time, this was before the whole bundled discount um, phenomena really took hold. Okay. Um, and this was a, you know, this was an issue. And frankly, we, we were able to be successful with this um, issue, and we were able to at least fight to live another day after the brand moved to dismiss um, ultimately, that case was settled favorably. But anytime you have a market share discount, um, you do need to think about its exclusionary effect and whether it is going to preclude the competitors from being able to effectively 
um, compete. Even if it does, it doesn't mean it's illegal because, again, lower prices is is, is, Good for the consumer. is the healthy and objective of the antitrust right. laws. Exactly. It's great for the consumer. But there are instances in which it can um, cause some problems. And finally, we have something called non-discrimination clauses. While sounding good in terms of uh, sort of general, um, it can become problematic. Um, what essentially you're saying is if you're going, you know, kind of like the network inclusion, um, if you're going to utilize X, you also got to utilize us. Um, uh, this issue was involved in kind of the uh, credit card litigations where uh, the major credit cards basically said, you know, you can't discriminate against us if you're going to use some of the lesser uh, credit cards who obviously charge the lower merchant fee, lower processing fee. You also have to use, you know, us as well. Um, and that could impede the ability um, of, of other cards to take hold because you know everybody has a visa or mastercard in their pocket right. if they see that's accepted they're just going to swipe whereas obviously if the merchant could discriminate quote unquote and just go with the upstart credit card um then you know depending on the on the on the merchant's popularity that card could take hold and maybe one day compete with visa and mastercard so find its share of the market Exactly. So that that is kind of the problem. Again, um, I wouldn't say that these issues are are you know really high on people's radar, but it's something to think about when you're when you're negotiating contracts. Again, any contract where essentially it has inherently an effect on somebody outside the parties to the contract, you need to think about. Okay. And then finally, we talked in this section one series um, earlier in the podcast series um, about exchanging price information. Right. Um, which would be problematic, you know, price and, and, and cost information because um, obviously that would be the maybe the first stage in a price-fixing conspiracy. But even if you're actually, there's no agreement on price, could obviously lead to price stabilization and the like, and that's something that the antitrust laws are designed to prevent. Right. But what about exchanging non-price information? Again, the, the question really is what type of information this is. If it is at all competitively sensitive, if it's something you really would not want others to see, uh -huh. and I don't mean just from a privacy standpoint, from, but from a competition standpoint, and you're exchanging that information with a competitor, that can raise antitrust concern. If the information is not competitively sensitive and you can't really extrapolate any sensitive information uh, from it, then it's probably not too um, problematic. It's okay. It, it is. What that may be is very fact, very industry uh, specific. Right. Um, case by case. It, totally case by case. But it's just, you know, don't let your clients and don't let your business folks just exchange information just because, oh, but it's not price and cost. Um, or it's not our strategic plans. You know, you never that, know. You never know. Just run it by your counsel. Make sure that he or she understands what the information is being exchanged, why it's being exchanged, what's the pro-competitive justification for it, just before you do it. It's a lot of, it, you know, again. Better it's safe the, than sorry. Better safe than sorry. <laughs> and certainly is, it, it can save you from a lot of headache and, and cost down the road. So it's a smart policy. Make sure that you're talking across departments so that there's a basic understanding of all of these uh, sort of ideas behind these antitrust 101 um, 
education, you know, the podcast series, you know, maybe even a good thing to sort of put something together to communicate with, um, it sounds like, uh, business administration, uh, sales, marketing. Absolutely. Uh, across all those departments so that there's some basic understanding. Right. And what you're really talking about is a compliance program. Oh. And that's what you need. And in fact, um, later on in this series, we're going to talk about compliance programs. What What is a compliance program? Why one should have it? How detailed do they need to be? Or yeah. how undetailed can they be? Um, how do you effectively communicate antitrust um, uh, issues and antitrust, you know, just knowledge to it your business It sounds like they folks. have to be specific to your business. One compliance program... Certainly would not fit all. No, not at all. Because these are so much gray space here. Yes, a pharmaceutical manufacturer is inherently different from a tile manufacturer who is inherently different from a hospital system. Who Telecommunications is in, provider right, and so on. To a patent portfolio sure. um, acquisition company. Um, everything is, is it's geared. And again, you know, some companies who are in fields that are just inherently more antitrust averse or, mm. or more subject to antitrust scrutiny have to have a little much more vigorous. Um, others can have maybe a little less detailed of a compliance program, but everyone should have a program, especially if you're a public company, but even if yeah. you're not. You need to have a, com a compliance program. You need to have something. You need to have regular education. And again, it does not have to be overly extensive, right. but it has to be effective. And it has to be done in ways that your business people understand it, right. that they understand not just the big picture issues, but even some of the, the gory details, the operational issues, because these are the people on the front lines. And you would much rather them ask you some very silly questions than not ask you any questions and then find out two years down the road you have one major problem. And a policy of question asking, a culture of that, starting with the compliance uh, policy, uh, sort of an open door yes. uh, to ask these questions could save you a lot of headaches. Yes, and okay. it's never, never a bad thing. Right. Um, so that will wrap up uh, Section 2 Unilateral Conduct. Um, I'm Jay Levine. Again, I was ably joined by uh, Sarah Smith Oberst. Uh, you can reach me at uh, jlevine, J-A-Y-L-L-E-V-I-N-E at Twitter. You can also find me on LinkedIn. You could uh, message me or email me directly at the letter J, L-E-V-I-N-E, -E, at porterite.com. Please, any comments, um, compliments, always accepted. Um, <laughs> criticisms, also accepted. Um, ideas for future podcasts are really welcome. Um, and just uh, anything, um, anything you have to say, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, and please check back at our um, at our blog site for uh, future podcasts and um, and blogs and, and written articles. Um, that's antitrustlawsource.com. Uh, thank you very much, Sarah. Thanks, Jay. Have a great day. Porter Wright Morrison Arthur LLP offers this content for informational purposes only as a service for our clients and friends. This content is not intended as legal advice for any purpose, and you should not consider it as such. All rights reserved.